This is Aliens and Artists, part two of our conversation with Jennifer Sodini. I'm your host, Stuart Davis. Jennifer is about to share the most mind-blowing story about UFOs, meditation, and the Great Pyramid that I've ever heard. <laughs> yeah, so I mean, it's interesting talking about mind and things and and how it can unfold in a, a variety of ways. So as I started working on a mentee oracle, which is my oracle deck, and connected with the artist that's my partner in the project, all of this magic started to unfold, like psychic synchronicities, wild stuff, really just defied explanation. And in that was getting gifted a trip to Egypt. And within this gifted trip, there was an experience where we got to spend the night in the Great Pyramid. So each of the three, we got an hour in. And I... We had different times that we could choose, and I wanted to choose the witching hour, so I chose between 1 and 4 a.m., and we went in the first, the into the king's chamber, and I had an experience where I got to lay in the sarcophagus while our... <laughs> Who gets to do that? I know. It's really wild. <laughs> and when I was laying in the sarcophagus, I literally had a complete out-of-body experience I saw my spirit rise above myself. I was shaking and just like, like those images, if you've ever seen the secret teaching of all ages with Manuel P. Hall, like those illustrations of just kind of like seeing your spirit rise above yourself, that happened. So then in between the first and second pyramid, we're waiting and look up at the sky and we see like a fleet of orbs, like hundreds. I don't, I don't, I don't even know how many, how many there had to be just moving orbs and orbs and orbs in the sky. It's just so fast. And we all wind up seeing it except for my one friend. He's like, I can't see from the clouds. And he got like really mad. But like the most of the group saw it and we're looking at the tour guides. And we're like, what? And they're like, yes, this happens a lot. And then again, like the UFO on the beach. Pretty soon after the orbs, we saw a military plane flew over the pyramids. And the pyramids are like a no-fly zone. So the fact that it happened was like, what? <laughs> like, here we go again. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God. It's shocking. Again, let's rewind and examine this piece by piece. I was not even aware it is possible for a visitor to spend a night inside one pyramid, much less three. How did that happen? Is that still possible? And three hours seems luxurious, miraculous. How long were you outside your body? Was there content or information in that experience? It sounds akin to a near-death teaching, and it also calls to mind the books of the dead. Expand upon those facets, if you would. Yeah. So when it happened, I mean, we had our group, right? And everybody was toning in the room. So they were collectively chanting Om. And when it happened, it just felt like this ethereal body come out of myself. And, you know, the Egyptians believe that the soul had like nine different parts. And it felt like, you know, they talk about like the Merkaba being the vehicle of ascension, right? The star tetrahedron. It felt different than that. It felt like this ethereal white second body like they talk about also like the in the spirit there's like this the double the animating spirit felt like i saw that and had a connection to that so 
it was mind blowing because, <laughs> you know, I've journeyed with ayahuasca. I've had all these like transcendental experiences through meditation and dreams, but seeing that and feeling that and just, you know, your whole body shaking. It's like, if you've seen the fifth element, you've seen that, right? No. You haven't? I don't believe so. <gasps> oh my gosh. Well, you have to watch it. Am I watching that tonight? Yes, please do. <laughs> okay, can do. Uh, but you'll see there's a scene where Lilu, who's the main character, the fifth element, she gets activated and light comes out of her and it felt like that. So when you watch the fifth element, I mean, I can't believe you haven't seen it, especially with what you're into. You're going to love it. It's so good. All right, I'm psyched. When the orbs were present, how long were they there by themselves? Did you have a sense that they were native to earth, elemental, alien? How long did you observe them? It was going on for like, I'd say a good 20 minutes where there were just so many of them and they were smaller than the other orbs that I saw. It just almost felt like cells flying through the air. And I don't know, because this is the thing I try and wrap my head around. I'm like, was that extraterrestrial craft? Is that something that we activated within the pyramids? <laughs> um, what are those things? Because it was so different than the two dancing orbs that we saw in the sky. It was a rush of all of these like smaller orbs. So many, I mean, beyond anything that I could count. So I don't know, but it again, it had this like joyous feeling. We're like, oh my gosh, wow. There's something to consciousness calling in things from beyond definitely very joyous and then i mean it's not like we had the black triangle come but it was definitely like a big military plane so that also was conf confirming to be like okay so it is a thing wherever you are in the world and did the military jet disperse those orbs yeah they they were gone pretty shortly after that that had to be a crestfallen moment to witness that twice in your life. On two occasions, you partake in an enchanted event, which is derailed by an ostensibly aggressive human response. Yeah, yeah, it was weird. When you reflect on the sum total of all these experiences and events, have principal themes or lessons emerged for you? Yeah, I think looking at the scope of this conversation, the time we're in, the fact that the government is admitting that they have off-world craft, it can be so easy to drive yourself crazy with all the information. And I have to just share that really incorporating meditation in a regular way into my life, and again, like prayer as a technology, it's something I'd really like to drive home to everyone listening, finding that practice that helps keep you grounded and offers your consciousness as, as a form of service, if you will, just for something beyond you. I think it's really important at this time. And all the breadcrumbs and things that you know you may hear from this conversation and want to look deeper into, I just really have to drive home the point of discernment and being able to hold that it can be both things. It can be both good. It can be both good and bad. It can be benevolent and malevolent. That really just feels like a point that feels important to drive home with this whole thing. Tell us more about your Oracle deck, which you made reference to earlier in setting up how these experiences in Egypt came to be. So yeah, a Menti Oracle came out about a year ago. It's based off of the 42 ideals of Ma'at or Mayet, depending on how you want to pronounce it. But she is the Egyptian goddess of truth, balance, 
Order from Chaos. And in the Egyptian Book of the Dead, that is her feather, which is an ostrich feather, is what your heart is measured against. Um, and if your heart is as light as her feather, you can pass through to the next life. So in the Egyptian Book of the Dead, there are the 42 negative confessions of Ma'at, which is, I have not sinned, I have not stolen. We explore it through the 42 ideals, which are more empowerment. So it's like, I honor virtue, I am peaceful, I respect the property of others. Everything is a powerful affirmation or empowerment to living with a feather heart. And it's illustrated by the amazing Natalie Miller, who is my partner, and uh, she's just and a wonderful, wonderful person. And we have our supplemental journal called Everyday Amenti, which is coming out in December, on December 1st. And it's based off of the 42 ideals, the seven hermetic principles, and the three alchemical principles. And it's 52 weeks of meditation and creativity and self-inquiry to really keep you grounded as you seek the stars. What a beautiful art form. <laughs> I think you're the only person I know that has their own deck. Let's talk about the wild goose chase. In spirituality, in the paranormal, in the life of a passionate seeker, there is often a quality of a never-ending labyrinth of compelling decoys, arresting mirages. Your channeling experiences might be one example of that. My synchronicities could be another. There's often a magnetic pull, one integer in the equation, which ceaselessly unfolds without resolution, leads nowhere. It's a wild goose chase. So how long did yours go on and how did you finally terminate it? <laughs> That's such a good metaphor, the magnetic pull that you feel of these things. And it just feels so important. It feels like you've been placed in the center of this wild unfolding, this great myth that you're the main key player in. And, you know, when the channeling first started and I was getting stuff in Aramaic, I was getting words in Turkish. I was getting all of this poetic, beautiful, like I'd love to believe that I could just go off the cuff and just talk for four hours unbroken. But I, 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 <laughs> I haven't been able to do that since I could stop channeling other than, you know, conversations. But it was just putting me at the center of this big cosmic story and then getting all these little breadcrumbs that would give me a sliver of something, but then lead me to like a closed door or lead me to a dead end. It felt like almost like being in Jim Henson's labyrinth. <laughs> like, <laughs> the right way is the wrong way. What demon will you find here? What angel will be on the other side? It was a lot of that. And it was strange because a lot of what came through in the channeling, again, like the weird unfolding and people being dropped into my life. About a year into it, I had connected with this now very famous uh, hypnotherapist and she offered to give me a past life regression just in trade. And the past life regression I had with her was so confirming and so many of the things that I had seen through channeling, but then it became confusing because I'm like, is this all just a projection? What is it? But it wasn't until, because I would, when I would go into these trance states, my ex was my scribe. So I would just be in this state and just going and going and going and like, and he'd write it all down. And it's weird because I don't know why we ever didn't think to like record it. We have everything handwritten. I have books. I have stacks of books, which <laughs> is so weird looking back. Like, why didn't we record this? But 
yeah, he, he scribed everything. But then when that relationship ended and I was just feeling like, okay, well, if, if this is this big cosmic myth that I'm a part of and all of these things I've been told, why does everything feel so hard and difficult and weird? I'm going to just close the chapter on it and just be here now and use my own what I receive in dream state or what I receive through my own intuition. I'm not going to like keep opening a door to ask for cosmic forces to guide me when they're there already. I just have to learn to listen more without opening that door. And you still have the books? Yeah, I still have all of them. Okay, we'll put some of those channeled works in the show notes if you're comfortable with it. Yeah, definitely. And, and the thing that I feel is an important keynote to reflect on is that when it happened, you know, 2014, I was getting all of these channelings about what would happen in 2019 and 2020. Looking back on them now, it's very humbling because they were very accurate, very spot on, very much nothing that, you know, if you told me in 2014 that actually what would happen in 2019 and 2020 would be this, the channeling was spot on spot on. Thankfully, it allowed you to act early and prevent anything bad from ever occurring in 2020. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, that's just the thing. <laughs> that was the thing. Though. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> I thought you meant like on a personal level. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm kidding. Just joking because it's at the heart of this question. Yeah. What do we do with such foreboding information? Sometimes it comes through channeling or downloads and contains actionable information. It's helpful. We're able to do something with it. Other times in precognitive dreams or Edgar Cayce-esque states or Nostradamus-type prophecies, there's a cryptic quality to the content that makes it hard to decipher, confusing to act upon. It's simply not actionable. Then an event happens, and the percipient feels they should have done something. Well, like what? Tell the feds that the Twin Towers will fall in a week or two? So, what's the point of precognition? Is it simply part of the ecosystem of consciousness, or is there a purpose, a teleology to this capacity, which could improve human lives? What's your take on the information you got about 2019 and 2020? How much benefit did it bring to your life? How much of it was not actionable? Well, I think that's such an important point, the actionable stuff. Like it makes me think of the butterfly effect of like a butterfly flaps its wings in Japan. It causes a tsunami on the other side of the world. And maybe there's that's part of the design of these things where if it's too much information happens, it informs the unfolding that maybe they designed in a different way because the way the way it was given was that the actionable step would be that you know there's nothing that can be done to stop this, but all you can do is focus on being good to your fellow man and being good to yourself and taking good care to protect yourself. They kept talking about the fires of 2019, the fires of 2019, that this is a time where they it talked about the gong of judgment a lot, and which was really interesting because I have this good friend of mine who's amazing and she lives in Jordan and she speaks Arabic. And I told her about the channeling and shared some of it with her. And, you know, she grew up reading the Quran because, you know, her family, her family's Muslim. And she was like, oh my God, Jen, the gong of judgment is something that we talk about a lot in this faith, the gong of judgment. And it's funny when you think 
of like 2020 has been like beyond all the bizarre, like straight out of a sci-fi movie, but it's felt like a lot of karma, the gong sounding for a lot of people. So it's interesting. I have to ask because everyone will wonder, were there predictions about what will happen between 2020 and 2024? Uh, 2020, basically it was 2020 to 2021 is as far as it extended out for me, but this was the, the general gist and I'll give this, give you some of these channelings for the show notes to include, but was that this is kind of a time of, you know, if you look at this time uh, archetypically as the judgment card and tarot, the, the <laughs> kind of trumpets sounding judgment you know, being kind of met with all of the shadow and all of the things that need improvement. I mean, I hate to say it this way because I still am making sense of all the channeling, but the big message was that it was a time for the earth to correct itself and that uh, the best thing that you can do is to be a good human through it because it felt like very biblical, to put it that way. It conjures visions of the Kali Yuga. Do you feel that may be transpiring the age of the Kali Yuga, or do you feel an optimism that some new human reality may emerge which contains sanity and balance? Mm, well, I think the Kali energies are the most appropriate archetype <laughs> of this time, but she is the creator, destroyer, destroyer, creator. Things need to be destroyed in order for new things to be created. So it may be the necessarily the necessary coagulation before the solve. <laughs> it's funny, a few nights ago I had a dream about, so there's this whole conspiracy about uh, Keck and this Egyptian god of chaos and chaos magic and how like all these kids on 4chan basically use chaos magic to get Trump elected, whatever that may mean. But I had this dream about Keck and him being the the god of chaos. And that's, you know, if Kali is the goddess, Kek is the god of this time. And the chaos, I think, is necessary to shake things up because ultimately the problem that we have is a systemic problem. It's the systems that have been designed are failing us. So if we keep going on with the same systems that are failing us, we're only going to continue to fail. So it's a necessary disruption so that we can reprogram and get to a space where hopefully our kids can get to there. I don't know how long it's going to last. What is time in a linear sense? But it does very much feel like we're in that. But I also, this is, this is the paradox of it all, right? Like how much is a projection? How much is a prediction? How much is a manifestation? How much is a mirage? How do you hold all of that in thinking about these things? They're each 100%. Yeah. Right? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It reminds me of that old Zen saying, all beliefs are false, especially this one. (laughs) I love that. Continuing on this line of grave warnings about planetary collapse issued by non-human intelligences, We can think of the aerial school sightings by scores of children, where many of the kids received ominous visions of ecological collapse. It was delivered with compassionate, dire concern. That's what keeps this complicated. There does seem to be contact rooted in simple, urgent concern that we are destroying a world. Since there are those with much more dubious intentions, let's talk spiritual hygiene. So what is your spiritual hygiene regimen? Like a metaphysical beauty show question I'm asking here. <laughs> well, for me, 
I look at both prayer and meditation as a form of technology. You know, prayer is when you're speaking directly to cosmic forces, right? And uh, meditation is when you allow it to speak to you. So I really begin each morning with a prayer out for goodwill for the world to be okay, to set a template for my time to be used for the betterment of all beings, not just myself. And having meditation be a part of my daily practice has been really, really key. I also believe in in cleansing items, you know, like sage, agua de florida, salt. Salt is a really key cleanser, and that actually came through in channeling the importance of salt, If you, especially if you are in a spiritual trying to open up a space for contact or whatever you know if you're if you're really looking deeper into that like protecting yourself letting the right ones in just knowing when to shut it off we are very porous absorbent beings we absorb so much more than i think you know we're even aware of we only use what like 10% of our brain so shutting off or just not going too deep into something and and becoming overzealous about it is really, really important. I think, you know, in the culture that we're in, we are so desperate for something to identify with or as. I'm a witch. I'm new age. I'm spiritual. I'm woke. I'm this. Really minding what your identities are and holding, holding space for it to be everything and nothing and all at once. I think that's a really important part of the hygiene because that can be its own form of limitation as well. Let's talk about spiritual bypass, this seduction, this temptation to skip steps on our path, preferring not to grow slowly with difficulty, but instead to find shortcuts. One of the big confusions is around this idea that a temporary change in our state of consciousness is the same as a permanent change in our stage of development. So, I go on a vision quest. I have a profound experience, full of insight, a revelatory event. At the conclusion of it, I feel fundamentally changed, transformed. I must be a different person. But later, back in my day-to-day life, I find over time that peak experience dissolves in mundane reality. Then, the sobering sense that lasting growth is slow, simple, and it emerges through many of the things that you've already shared. Service to others. Engaging love without quid pro quo. Did you easily arrive at that insight? Did you have a moment of, oh, I guess I'm going to go back, have to circle back (laughs) to the beginning again? I I think it's like... um all of these experiences are necessary to arrive at that point. I don't think, and for most people that have like a spiritual awakening and kind of like arrive at this, like, Oh my God, wow. There's so much more to reality. Uh, I wrote this blog once about like the stages of like awakening where like you go from the alarm clock to, you know, (laughs) like all these different stages. Cause like first you want to tell the world and then you eventually arrive to a place where it's just like, let's just embody it and ask more questions. My really good friend has this great metaphor of like, nobody likes waking up to like a noisy alarm clock. You always like slam the alarm clock shut, right? You want to hit snooze. But if you let people wake up when they're meant to, and then maybe just like be up in the metaphorical kitchen of life cooking some cinnamon buns, that'll draw them in. The smell will draw them in. They'll want to come and sit and talk and, and share a meal with you. You know, it's really learning the art of 
the fact that like the ultimate truth is that <laughs> what do we know? We only know a sliver of a million potentials. And I look back to 2012 Jen and when I was just like re-remembering all this stuff and just so excited about it and just like this kind of like blind naivete. But it wasn't until attending spirit spiritual events meeting a lot of people along the way, all the different casts of characters, you realize, wow, we're all just trying to figure it out. And it's just an ever evolving and unfolding thing. And it it makes me think of this one Lao Tzu quote about how nature doesn't hurry yet everything's accomplished. If a seed falls from the tree and you're just shouting at the seed to grow, it's not going to sprout its roots faster. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So it's kind of like that. And I think it's also dangerous because spiritual bypass in the way of like, just, you know, I took a substance and now I'm woke or I had a Kundalini awakening and now I understand the secrets of the universe or now I'm a shaman or now I'm this, now I'm all these self-proclaimed things. That's dangerous. And it's also dangerous because spiritual bypass can be the form of like gaslighting in that same event too, where you think you have it all figured out. It's all love and light, bro. You know, like just raise your vibration higher. It's like, (laughs) it's not all that either. You know, you don't want to gaslight people because shadow work is equally important. You have to hold both. I want to ask you about this persistent notion, which we see in some quarters of paranormal circles and more generally in spiritual communities. It's this idea that people with negative attitudes attract negative aliens. People with positive attitudes attract positive aliens. The notion is that a person's attitude is to be faulted or credited with the nature of their experience. Personally, I don't feel that attitude is irrelevant. Certainly, we should cultivate love and compassion. But how do you feel about this idea that having the wrong mental disposition could determine the entire nature of one's contact. Well, I think any blanket statement can lead itself to its own form of like spiritual bypass or gaslighting. I definitely think there's a factor in our fears and our love and our attitudes of all experiences that we have. But to say it's just the one thing is discounting all the other things that could be too. Jen, thank you so much for being on the show. Really appreciate you, appreciate your sharing with us. And Aliens and Artists is sending you cosmic hugs. Cosmic hugs right back. <laughs> for more information on Jennifer Sodini, go to jennifersodini.com or check the show notes. Hans Wolf Glazer was an incredibly talented printer, woodcut tinter, and publisher. He lived and worked in Nuremberg, Germany, from 1500 to 1573, in the annals of aliens and artists. It would be fair to call him a founding father. Because Glazer created the arresting image which depicts the now-famous UFO sighting of 1561. In fact, it depicts a UFO battle. This celestial conflagration unfolded before the gobsmacked faces of the local population. Glazer's rendering of the event is, of course, in the period style. But some 500 years later, it is a singular and captivating work. Numerous artworks from many ages may or may not depict UFOs. 
Is that a saucer in this Renaissance painting? Do these prehistoric glyphs depict non-human entities? And so forth. But Glazer's work is completely unambiguous. It is an explicit depiction of a UFO battle that occurred over Nuremberg, Germany in 1561, full stop. It was witnessed by throngs of citizens. We know this because Glazer accompanied his vivid colored woodcut with an article. In it, he describes in no uncertain terms the source and inspiration for this artwork. Glazer recounts, quote, In the morning of April 14, 1561, at daybreak, between 4 and 5 a.m., a dreadful apparition occurred on the sun, and then this was seen in Nuremberg in the city, before the gates and in the country, by many men and women, and first there appeared in the middle of the sun two blood-red semicircular arcs, just like the moon in its last quarter, and in the sun, above and below and on both sides the color was blood. There stood a round ball of partly dull, partly black, ferrous color. Likewise, there stood on both sides and as a torus above the sun such blood-red ones and other balls in large number, and three in a line, and four in a square. Also, some alone. In between these globes there were visible a few blood-red crosses, between which there were blood-red strips becoming thicker, to the rear and in the front malleable like rods of reed grass which were intermingled among them two big rods, one on the right, the other to the left, and within the small and big rods there were three, and also four more globes. These all started to fight among themselves, so that the globes which were first in the sun flew out to the ones standing on both sides, thereafter the globes standing outside the sun in the small and large rods flew into the sun, the globes flew back and forth among themselves and fought vehemently with each other for over an hour. And when the conflict in and again out of the sun was most intense, they became fatigued to such an extent that they all, as said above, fell from the sun down upon the earth as if they all burned. And then they wasted away on the earth with immense smoke. After all this, there was something like a black spear, very long and thick, sighted. The shaft pointed to the east, the point pointed west. By Hans Glaser, letter painter of Nuremberg. End quote. In modern parlance, this was a bona fide celestial shit show, an Empyrean yard sale, a mindfuck in the firmament. And we have visionary artist Hans Wolf Glaser to thank for the fact that we're aware of it at all, much less in such vivid detail. Can you imagine the conversations wives and husbands had, and didn't have, for the years that followed? The multiloquent quarrels, the tacit tensions, the medieval makeup sex. There is a link in the show notes to Glazer's colored woodcut depiction of the mass UFO battle, which is currently housed at the Zentra Bibliothek in Zurich, Switzerland. We've also included a link to his other original broadsheets, which are magnificent. Aliens and Artists is brought to you by The Liminal Muse, offering one-on-one -on -one sessions with me, Stuart Davis. Sessions focus on contact, sightings, paranormal experience, and creativity as a spiritual path. Visit theliminalmuse.com to book a session. 
How 